Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. It's a Guy Jeans podcast. Hi, you guys. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. And I want to thank all of you guys uh, listening and watching on uh, YouTube as well. If you're not a, a subscriber on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. Or if you're listening to uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, make sure to write a review. It helps the podcast grow. And much appreciated. My guest today is Moss Okui. And Moss is an interesting guy, um, not only in the fly fishing world, he's a legend in the fly fishing world, but he was also a prisoner in uh, the 1940s at the Manzanar concentration camp up in the Eastern Sierra. Um, His family lived in the San Fernando Valley and then the U.S. government ordered all the Japanese Americans, thousands of them, to the concentration camp in California's Eastern Sierras. In, uh, In fact, 62% 62% of the inmates at Manzanar were U.S. citizens, and most of them were from the Los Angeles area. Pretty crazy, but uh, I'm going to talk to Moss about his experience in the camp, and uh, you know, there's also some fishing stories that go along with that camp, and uh, what it was like to be a kid there. Um, some of the people actually snuck out and went fishing up in the eastern Sierra there. We're going to talk about that. Um, but we're also going to talk about uh, how he became a fisherman, how he became a fly fisherman, and his legendary leaders for fishing Hot Creek. And he's going to give that formula as well as some of the flies that he used in ties for Hot Creek and some of the other uh, streams and rivers that he fishes in the U.S. Um, this is a good one, you guys. Um, I'm honored to have Moss Okui on my podcast, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. Hi Moss, how you doing? I'm okay. Well, great. I'm I'm really uh, honored to have you on my podcast. You know, I've I've heard of the the legend himself for so many years. Um, you know, being in the fly fishing world, and um, I'm I'm happy to have you on my podcast and talk about fly fishing, of course. But um, I also wanted to talk about your history, um, uh, being in Manzanar when you were a kid. I I kind of read some history on you. I think you were probably about uh, 10 or 11 years old when you went to Manzanar. And would you mind kind of uh, talking about Manzanar and what that is and for people that don't know? Well, Manzanar uh, was created during World War II to imprison people of Japanese descent mm-hmm. because of the war against Japan. And that uh, they were removed from the three West Coast states, Washington, Oregon, California, and the southern half of Arizona. Those became restricted zones. And they were placed in uh, 
uh, finally in what were called war relocation centers. Basically, they were prisons. Yeah. And, uh, but um, uh, the Japanese American National Museum chooses to use the term um, concentration camps. Oh, okay. But, but the problem with concentration camps is when I talk to Jewish people, Right. Is that they, those? Yeah, those are not constant. I said, what happened to the Jews were slave labor death camps, but but they don't use those terms. Yeah, yeah. So you were um, ten or eleven years old when you went in. Yeah, I was ten. Um, we were living in Burbank at the time that we were told that we would have to to leave. I, and, uh, I read somewhere your mom, when she told you, she said you're going to camp or something. Yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because I remember she, she, she was an avid knitter, so she knitted us some muffins and scarves and beanies. And I remember uh, there was a, a shoe store chain called Carl's Shoes, uh-huh. which was in... Significant back in the 30s and 40s, and she bought us some boots which we had never had before. And we said, "Oh yeah, we're going to camp." <laughs> <laughs> that must have been something. You guys all um, did. You guys all have to meet somewhere, and then they well, they bust what, you up what there. What we did was um, uh, since we lived in Burbank, and there were only two federal facilities in Burbank, the post office and the Social Security office. So we had to gather at the Social Security office, which was about, oh, maybe a block and a half, two blocks away from where we lived. And uh, it was late April. And I remember we were told we could take with us only what we could carry. Wow. And um, so my mom laid out a sheet and put our stuff in it. And then with, uh, uh, I guess it was India Inc., she put our family name and number on there and uh, tied it up in a bundle, and that's what we could carry. Wow. So did they... One of the questions I've always wondered is like they they cleared you guys out of your houses and and homes and and uh, when you guys uh, were released from the camp, did you guys go back to those same homes? Well, some people did, but uh-huh. what what we did was uh, the government provided um, a trailer camp in Burbank, oh. um, adjacent to Lockheed. Oh, okay. And uh, so we stayed in trailers for a couple of months until we got settled. And so your mom and dad, um, did they come over from Japan? No, my mother was born here. My father was from Hiroshima. Yeah. So your mom was a citizen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so then you guys went up there, and then do you remember like walking into the camp for the first time? Well, we rode a bus. Uh-huh. And and I don't know if you saw a movie called Schindler's List. Yes. There's one scene in there where the people are silently watching a train as it's coming into the depot. Yes. 
And I suddenly had uh, this deja vu because I remember it was it was dusk, and as we were riding into the camp on the buses, you could see the people lined up and silently just watching us. Wow. And uh, I don't, I, you know, it was a different situation in Chandler's List, but then, then you know, it evoked that, that kind of memory. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And so then you guys got off the, the, uh, the bus and you were walking up to the camp and then they, they assigned you guys your housing? No, no, no. They had barracks. Oh, barracks. Okay. Yeah. And, um, my two brothers and my father went to the camp. My mother was, uh, detained at the prison ward in, at LA County hospital because she was pregnant. So, and she joined us later, uh, with, with, uh, my little brother. He was a fourth, fourth son. Oh, wow. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was unlike anything that, that we had experienced before. Oh, for sure. Because living, living in San Fernando Valley, uh, all the Japanese people who lived there were all sent to Manzanar. And so we knew many of the families already because, uh, what we had was in North Hollywood, we had a Japanese language school, uh-huh. and we we owned that building, or we rented it, or I don't know, but we, we used that building for a Japanese language school, and it was used for uh, social functions for Japanese Americans in San Fernando Valley, plus they had one in San Fernando also. So... For the most part, we knew most of the people from our area that that went to Manzanar from San Fernando Valley. So when you guys got there and um, you guys got your barracks and you guys were all living kind of close together, it sounded like they were like 10 by 10 kind of rooms or something. No, 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 no. Oh. The, 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 the rooms were 20 by 25. Oh, 20 by 25, okay. Yeah, but according to the War Relocation Authority, which administered the camps, each person was allowed 100 square feet, 10 by 10. Got it. So in one apartment, presumably it was for four people, but the camp hadn't been completed when we arrived there, so we had eight people in this one 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 of what they called an apartment okay. in a barrack. I and see. Each barrack had four apartments. Now, did you did all the kids get to play, and then they went to school there as well? Yeah, yeah, we went to school. Uh-huh. Uh, some of the teachers were really good. Um, uh, there were a few that weren't so good. Uh-huh. But for the most part, especially when I was in the eighth and ninth grade i had good teachers was there like kind of a, a police department that kind of was there as well to kind of keep things under control inside no there? they had a, a military police unit that okay. that, that uh, um stayed outside the camp they patrolled outside the bob wire okay was there any issues like inside the camp with like 
other uh, Japanese folks arguing? Or well, we, we had a, um, a Japanese police department. Oh, okay. And that, that was composed of the internees. I see. Yeah, I, I use the word internees or prisoners. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what was the food like? Well, at, 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 at the outset, it was pretty bad. Was it? <laughs> uh, yeah, because they gave us army mess kits. Uh, oh, right. The aluminum one, two-piece ones. Mm-hmm. We had a hard time because we'd drop our food, and uh, they would give us um, army uh, canteen cups. Right. Yeah, and if they had hot tea in there, it would, <laughs> it would leave a blister on your lower lip. <laughs> It's funny how we yeah. have remember when we're younger. We re- remember those little things, you know. Yeah, you know? yeah. But 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 the food was not very good initially. Uh-huh. But the way it worked is, <clears throat> each block had its own mess hall, and uh, they had their own cooks. Uh, some mess halls were better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, the the mess hall for the workers, the Caucasian workers was really nice mm-hmm. because uh, when the camp was closing down, they didn't have enough workers. So as a 13-year-old, I got a job washing pots and pans at the Caucasian mess hall. Uh-huh. And their food was considerably better than ours, but they had to pay for it. Okay. Yeah. Was there any um, problems like with... Uh you know, like the military police and the Japanese, was there, was there like? Well, they, you know? they, they, they had uh, the shootings in, oh. um, in uh, 1942, December of 1942. In the camp? In, in the camp, yeah. What happened? Well, what happened was um, uh, someone, and they think the Caucasian employees were, were, uh, stealing some of our food, oh. and so they were demonstrating against it. Uh, but at the same time, there were uh, uh, a group of people very pro-Japanese, so they were celebrating December 7th. And um, mm. the director was new to the camp, Ralph Merritt. He'd just come from the Park Service, and he'd come from Yosemite. So now he's running this prison camp. And I don't know what happened, but I think he panicked and sent the soldiers into the camp, which they weren't supposed to do. The soldiers were supposed to stay outside the camp. And they fired into the crowd. And they killed two people. And uh, I, I remember the Japanese doctor that was there was asked to sign a death certificate indicating that they had been shot in the front instead of in the back. And uh, he refused to do so. Next thing we knew, he was gone. Oh. Uh, yeah, but he, he was a prominent doctor in the Southern California area. His name was Goto, Dr. Goto. And, uh, yeah, I talked to him years later about that because I, I, I was... Uh, volunteering at the museum he was well on his years this was probably 19 1990 maybe yeah how many people were at manzanar what's that how many people were in manzanar 
Well, the the camp was designed for 10,000 people, but uh, ultimately, uh, counting births and people were sent there after the initial camp was opened, uh, probably about 11,000, a little over 11,000. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, you know, Cor- um, Corey, who, who did the movie, um, uh, Shiosaki, Corey Shiosaki, mm-hmm. who did the movie, um, the Manzanar fishing club, you know, he talks about, um, in the people sneaking out and going fishing at this, at this camp. And could you tell me a little bit about that? Um, well, how, how, I didn't know about that, uh-huh. uh, until maybe 1944, maybe early 44, because, uh, um, one of the fishermen, uh, was stranded in in the high country and apparently died of exposure. He'd gone up there to fish with people, but he was also an artist. And so he was going to wander around and do some artwork while the others came back. And I guess there was a blizzard or something that occurred, and, and maybe he was trapped. Yeah. Uh, and his remains were discovered by some hikers was it 1948 or 1949 or somewhere in that time. Oh, wow. But, but I knew, his son was a classmate of mine. Mm. His, uh, yeah, I don't remember his first name, but the last name was uh, Matsumura. And uh, I remember uh, being with his son when they sent out the uh, search party to try and find him, but they never did. Wow. So these guys would go up, they would sneak out of the camp, and then they would go up into the high country and catch trout. Yeah, that, that was pretty accurate. Yeah. That was, but, uh, but, but Corey didn't include that, that particular episode of uh, about Mr. Matsumura dying in his film, and I asked him uh-huh. why. Uh-huh. And he kind of didn't think it was important, or, or I don't know why, but it, it, I, I, th- I thought it should have been in there. Yeah. Yeah. So the so the idea these guys would actually found a way to sneak out of the camp, which is yeah, inc- yeah. which is incredible. Yeah. And yeah. did they have did they do it at a certain location like on the I guess it would be the west side, huh? Because it go towards the well, mountains or Yeah, I I know that that Bears Creek came through the camp. Uh-huh. And it was on the um uh, southwest corner of the camp. It just kind of went diagonally through that corner. I see. And then you could get under the barbed wire fence in the creek and go up the creek. Oh, okay. Yeah, but we didn't do that as long as uh, the soldiers were there. Yeah. And then when the soldiers were pulled out, then we had free access to, to walk walk to Shepherd's Creek or George's Creek or Hogback Creek. Uh-huh. Yeah. So but, would they bring those fish back, of course, or would they just would they eat them up there, or would they bring them back for food, or what did they do with those? I, I really don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. Um, you know, Corey, Corey seems to think they brought them back because uh-huh. they had that one picture um, with, with the guy holding the golden yeah. trout. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And, um, uh, uh, Phil Feaster, uh, the uh, guy who worked for the fishing game back then, 
uh, he verified that the pictures were golden trout. Wow, so cool. Yeah. Interesting yeah. stuff. So how did you get into fishing? Well, uh, when we were in Manzanar, uh-huh. um, I remember this soldier came by and he handed us a bag, a brown paper bag, and it had these little wooden squares with string wrapped around it with hooks on it. Oh, cool. And um, they were called drop lines. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Corey, Corey puts that in the, in the film, except the, the, the pictures of the drop lines are not accurate, but that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, and uh, I don't think we ever caught a fish with that stuff, but it had hooks on the end of the, the, the green line. It was just basically string. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was a wooden frame, and you wrapped the string around the frame, but we never caught anything. The only way we caught it, what we'd do is we'd find them, and we'd pile rocks in the stream and create a kind of a pool, <laughs> yeah. catch them with our hands. Oh, yeah. and, and would these be in the creek that was going through Manazanar, or did you guys... Yeah, that was in Bears Creek. Okay. And, yeah. And did they stock that for you guys? Or is there just well, wild fish in there? Well, according to the documents that Corey showed me, they, 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 yes, they did. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so then you got that uh, little hook and line type deal, and so that kind of sparked your interest a little bit in fishing? Well, sort of. You, you know, you're a kid. Yeah. Anyway, uh, one of the things in the Japanese community that we did was we did a lot of ocean fishing. Okay. And then because we didn't have any money, we would uh, go surf fishing. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes uh, there was a barge uh, out in Santa Monica Bay. So if you went there and fished at night, it was half the price or thereabouts, I think, of of the cost if you fished during the day. So I had an uncle who loved to go fishing, and as a as a kid, he would he would take me occasionally. So most of that, and then and then when we were when we came back from the camps, uh, we belonged to the YMCA, and they would take us up to the San Bernardino Mountains, oh. and uh, they they would show us how to fish. But but it was just something we did. And then when I got out of high school, and uh, that. It was uh, 1949. It was the first year I went up to the Sierras. We, a bunch of us guys, we didn't know what we were doing, but we went up there. <laughs> and, and we had bait rods, and we went to Crowley Lake. And, yeah. And I went to Hot Creek, and we fished with bait, and we caught these really nice trout. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah. But we caught them with salmon eggs and sure. know, whatever lures and whatever we used in those days. And just had a blast, I bet. Yeah, yeah. And that was the first time I'd seen Hot Creek. Then after, as we grew older, we'd actually camp down there in the gorge. Oh, really? Yeah, because there were no restrictions back then. Uh And stupidly, we drank the water from the stream. (laughs) (laughs) You guys didn't get sick, did you? 
Uh, no, no. Yeah, okay. But, you know, all those cattle were, you know, <laughs> yeah. they had the two ranches up above because right. Hot Creek Ranch and the other ranch were yeah. actual working ranches. Because the first time I went to Hot Creek Ranch, it was a working ranch. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so you guys would uh, I, you guys would camp there. So then, what happened? Did you? How did you get introduced to fly fishing? Well, I uh, we saw some guys fishing, uh-huh. and I went out and bought this bamboo rod. It was like maybe two dollars and seventy five cents. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, and uh, they were showing us how to use it. And, and, and in those days, the, the lines were made of silk. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, you, and you had to dress them each night. Uh-huh. And uh, you'd, you'd kind of stretch them between two trees and dry them out and, and dress them with And uh, what, what year do you think that was you were doing that with the silk lines? Oh, that had to be the early 50s. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Early it was it was before I went to the army because I went to the army in fifty uh, three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, huh? Yeah, because I got drafted in fifty three and. Did you go to the Korean, Korean War? War? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so then you got those uh, silk lines and you did that, and then you went to. Yeah, Korea. but but that, by that time I had this fly rod and I was I wasn't very good with it, uh-huh. and then when I was in the army. I met this guy from Pennsylvania. Uh, he was, his name was Janachko. I think it was a Polish name or something like that. But anyway, he was from Harrisburg, and he was a fly fisherman. Uh-huh. And so we're stationed in Germany, and there's a river there called the Lech, L-A-C-H, but it's a glacier river, so it was milky green. Uh-huh. We were told there were fish in there. And we went there, and luckily we caught a couple of fish. <laughs> and then uh, by that time, I was a sergeant, so I could buy a car. And what John and I decided to do was uh, we, we would go fish the Pyrenees nice. with and the streams that Ernest Hemingway fished. Oh. I'm a big Ernest Hemingway fan. And anyway, <laughs> we got there, and we... we uh, as San Fernando Street Spanish, which wasn't very good, they couldn't understand me. <laughs> my French was high school French, and so, so we kind of got by. But we kind of we took our army army clothes and we took a pup tent and we kind of <laughs> camped out in the Pyrenees. We didn't know what we were doing, uh-huh. but but later but later on, we went to England and. Uh, uh, we fished the Itchen, and and at that time you had to wear your uniform or coat and tie when you left base. So when we got to England and we went to the Itchen, the requirement at that time this was 1954. Was it 55? 54 or 55? And no, it was 54. And they made us wear a coat and tie on the stream. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so we had a coat and tie. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and, and then all oh, back in the seventies, uh, 
and we took a trip around the country with my kids pulling a trailer and I went to see my friend John and uh I was corresponding with a guy in Williamsport, uh, uh what's his name? Filson. I can't I can't remember his name. Yeah. But I've been corresponding with him. He's the one that, that explained how to build leaders to me. Oh, okay. And uh because I would go down to a Cliff Wyatt shop and Santa Monica, and he would show me his leader. Uh-huh. But then I looked at all the formulas, and and back at that time, I read all the fly fishing books that were in the L.A. City Library or County Library, and you could buy a postcard, and you could uh, send it in, and they would deliver that book to your library. Uh-huh. And th- they only had seven books on fly fishing. Which <laughs> I'm just astounded at how many books are out there because oh, right. mostly they're a rehash of stuff that that people wrote about a long time ago. Sure, yeah, and they they they, they they've they've made the sport too complicated. <laughs> it, it used to be simple, yeah, but, but that was always my thought. So you, yeah, so t- you. Uh, started looking at his formulas, his leader formulas, and then did you start developing your own formula for leader Yeah, that was by accident. Uh-huh. Because I was talking to, oh, hell, I can't remember the guy's name in Williamsport. Anyway, uh, he convinced me that he, he had a kit that, that was made by Mason that he sold, and... Uh, he said, buy the kit. But before he had the kit, he, he, he would, uh, he had hard nylon that he sold in 44 inch pieces and he coiled them. And then, uh, what he did is he dyed them. He made them camouflage. <laughs> he told me camouflage. <laughs> I didn't know any better. <laughs> anyway, he would put them on a stick and then uh-huh. uh, he'd have these coils that are about four inches in diameter with a whole bunch of them in there. And then he'd dip it in one color and rotate and dip it in another color. <laughs> it was green, brown, and I think blue or, or some color like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, since they were 44 inches and I was building those leaders, that's why the, the sections came to about 18 inches. Uh-huh. And so initially on the... the the taper down, I used uh, 987, and I did it. Uh, the 9 was 9 inches, 8 was 8 inches, 7 was 7 inches. But uh, I changed that later on. And uh, But uh, I, I learned about the long leader from Cliff Wyatt, and uh, uh, he was one of these crusty old guys, smoked cigarettes, just, just brown yeah. with nicotine, and he didn't bathe a lot because he lived in his shop, and uh-huh. I don't think there was a shower in his shop. <laughs> but I, I don't quite remember. That's awesome. But but it, it was this, you know, college student. I'm an Asian guy going to the store, and everyone in there's white. And I'm asking him questions, and he sits me down at this at this table. And it's just an old kitchen table. 
yeah. with a vinyl covering on it. And uh, it seems there's not a square inch around the edge of it that doesn't have a cigarette burn on it. <laughs> and, and he shows me stuff, for instance. One of the things he told me, he says, uh, you got to use black thread for dry flies and white thread for wet flies. I said, how come? He says, so you can tell the difference. <laughs> I, I didn't know any difference. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Cliff was the master, right? Yeah, yeah. He listened. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Anyway, he, he was good to me. He would take time to explain things on how to tie flies. Nice. Uh, he, he had his own brand of, of rods, and I bought the, uh, a six-weight that was seven feet long. And, it, and I used it for a long time. It catched really well. Uh-huh. And uh, I use it with six-weight double taper. And for dry fly fishing, that's the only line I use now. Uh-huh. I, I use a Corlin 444 uh-huh. uh, double taper because it's so supple. Yeah. And uh, So and where, where where was this guy located, this buddy? Uh, he was on Broadway near 20th okay. in Santa Monica. Okay. It was called the Wilderness Fly Shop. Oh, awesome. Yeah, love, and he love. was one of the founders of the Wilderness uh, Fly Fishing Club, which is the oh. Santa Monica Fly Fishing Club. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's why it's the Wilderness. Oh, that's good to know. That's good history yeah, right yeah. there. I had no idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and there weren't a lot of fly shops around. Um, there was Ned Gray up in, in Montrose. Yeah. Yeah, well, I knew Ned really well. And he was always good to me, but that was later on. That was after. That was I got to meet Ned. Well, let's see. We moved to San Fernando Valley in '75, and that's when I got to meet Ned because I joined this uh, Sierra Pacific Fly Fishing Club here in the valley. Yeah, and uh, uh, so I would spend time with him and. And then, uh, uh, what was that Orange County fly shop's name, the big one? Uh, the Bob Marriott's one? Yeah, Bob Marriott. But yeah. he had a satellite store in Burbank. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, one of the guys in our club was a businessman, and he was he wanted to learn how to fly fish, and I would take him fly fishing, show him how, and, and he would... Uh, I, I remember one instance. I, I, I always used a... Uh, just an old, old uh, fly tying vice. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a bee vice. And I remember demonstrating f- fly tying at his shop. Oh, uh, cool. And he says, Moss, you know, I can't make any money selling those Thompson bee vices. Uh, <laughs> why, why don't you use one of these more expensive vices? He said, yeah, let, let me use the Spartan. Okay, so I started, next time I used the Spartan, he sold four or five of them. Sure. He said, you want to buy the Spartan? I said, no, $60, I can't afford that. He says, no, it's used. I'll, I'll sell it to you half price. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so I've been using that ever since, and I actually, I had a, two jaws on it, one for really small flies. 
Uh-huh. And eventually I used it so much it actually bent out and I had to have a machinist friend of mine grind it down so it would work again. Funny. So the vice the jaws are a lot shorter than the, the ones for the mini flies. But I still use that. It's it's my favorite vice. So uh at the Bart Hall show, you know, you were you were I think you walked into my booth or something and you were talking to me, you know, this, uh, just last, uh, this or last month. And, um, so we're, we're getting to talking and stuff. And you said you were going down to the Manzanar booth and I started chatting with you and then you're, my name's uh, Moss. And, uh, I go, my name's guy. And he's all, Oh, you, you spoke at my club one time. And I go, Oh, I know who you are. I've heard of you. And so it was kind of funny, you know, we both had heard of each other or seen each other before, but had never really been introduced, you know? And, uh-huh. and so, um, I have for years have, uh, of course heard of you and your, your long leaders that you, uh, use on hot Creek. And I'd like to talk to you about those and how you got to using that at uh, hot Creek and, and Hot Creek has become like some, one of your your favorite places. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And would yeah. you would you mind like talking a little bit about your your leader construction, if you don't mind, and and also like some of the flies that you tie for Hot Creek and how you fish yeah. that leader? Yeah, that'd be that, awesome. Yeah, that that that'd be that'd be that'd be a good idea. Yeah, I would love to hear that. So how what how did you come up with this leader? This long leader? Well. Uh, I use Cliff's formula, which was a formula that some famous fly fly fisherman developed. Uh-huh. But he just made it longer, and he had pieces that were first piece was maybe thirty six, twenty four, and 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 it was graduated down, and he graduated it down to maybe. Uh, Oh, maybe seven thousandths or maybe eight thousandths. Anyway, he had a pretty heavy tippet on there. And uh, so I looked up all the formulas that were around at that time. Mm-hmm. And I came across maybe five or six of them. I tried all of them. They didn't work too well. <clears throat> and then, as I say, uh, I... Uh, got these coils and started building them with 18 inches. And uh, I nail knotted them. Uh-huh. And then I coated the nail knot with uh, plyo bond. So it would slide easily through the, through the guides. Uh-huh. And I found that that would really lay out there. Because all, I, in those days, I could only afford the one line. Yeah. And... Uh, so and it would it would cast really well, but I, I over the years I've I this is how I do it. I when I used to go to the fly shows, I'd take my reel with me, and I'd try out all the rods from six weight on down that a manufacturer had, uh-huh. and and if I like them. Uh, uh, I would use I I would uh, usually buy the blank and build the rod. Okay. Yeah, and so over the years, uh, I I've gone through maybe uh, 
a dozen rods that that were satisfactory to my system. Uh-huh. You know, I, and one of the best rods ever made for the way that I cast is a Thomas and Thomas four and a half weight special dry fly. There were only twenty of them made. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. There were fifty of them made because I lost a uh, Lynn Codella who designed it, and uh, I have friends who own two or three of those things. Really? Yeah, and they're they're extremely valuable because they're parabolics, and uh, uh, but uh, anyway, I've gone I've gone through a lot of them, and I found a. a the TFO rod, the really cheap rod. Uh-huh. It was something like $90, $90. And I think, oh, hell, this one really works well. <laughs> so perfect. <laughs> anyway, what what occurred was I went to a show, and the guy was there, and I said, and I was complaining, how come you discontinued this? We can't make any money on it. <laughs> and and I said, well, you got a four-weight rod? And I said, no, we only got this BVK three weight. And I said, do you mind if I try? Sure, go ahead. And I put my reel on that thing and it cast all liter and it cast 40 feet of line. That was all I had on my, my reel because I cut the lines in half. Uh-huh. And it was just without exception the the optimal rod for the way I fish. Just absolutely a dream rod. And people would ask me, how can you put a six-weight line on a <laughs> three-weight rod? I said, you just screw it in. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you put it on. <laughs> but uh, the only drawback is when you get a big fish. Right. You know, I love fishing Henry's Fork, and you know how the grass is there. Yeah. And and it, it was hard to pull those fish out of the grass. Uh, but God, that thing worked well there. So your leader was, how long was the leader after it was all complete? Well, normally it was designed to be 21 feet. Okay. Cliffs was always 23 feet. Okay. And, and, and the, the way I do it is uh, I always know how long it is uh-huh. simply because I pull it through my rod and right. bring it around the reel and bring it to the midpoint and uh-huh. that's 20 feet okay and then i sh- and then i tighten it up to take the kinks out uh-huh. and, and let it sit a while and then uh i taper it down to five thousandths uh-huh. and but i use limp nylon for the tippet <clears throat> and so how would you cast that uh, carefully. Yeah. Like, would you, well, you cast uh, up? Well, the way, the way you do it, the way I do it, it's, uh, I cast differently than everyone else. Mm-hmm. For instance, when I hold the rod, uh-huh. I don't take my elbow away from the, my, my, my body because I had a bad shoulder for years until I had the surgery done about 15 years ago. Uh-huh. But I would have to keep my elbow in. So that meant that I had the perfect casting motion yeah. because... I, I didn't break my wrist. And the way it would work is I would, uh, after I made a cast and the line would be out there tightly, 
I would put the rod tip right down on the water, and I would pick it up at a 45-degree angle to my right. Yeah. And then I would start to... Uh, and when I'm picking it up, I have both my hands together on the rod. My right hand's holding it, my left hand's next to it, holding the line. Okay. And then as I pick it up, and I start the forward cast, and I feel the load, then with my left hand, I'll pull it down about 18 inches or two feet. And what that'll do is accelerate the line so it goes all the way across the stream. Okay. <clears throat> and I do it at a 45-degree angle, so there's a big belly upstream as a line lands on the water, and the moment it hits the water, I have the rod tip on the water, and I give it a big upstream mend. Okay. And then as a fly, the fly will then precede the leader, and I give it a series of mends, and then as it gets farther down, and I feed mend uh -huh. so that I, I get, at, you know, without any problem, 20 feet of drag-free drift. Yeah. And, and I try to explain that to people, and... And they said, well, you can't do that because a three-way rod should use a three. I said, whoever told you that nonsense? <laughs> and, and, and you know, pe pe people get so enamored because the, the one thing that Sage does not do is they do not make a slow-action rod. And people swear by Sage. Well, if you have a fast-section rod and you catch, you get a straight line out there and you get instant drag. And people don't understand that. And uh, uh, so I, I, I like a real soft tip, but I also like uh, a rod that has backbone in the bottom section. Mm -hmm. And that's what the BDK rods have. Are they, that's are they, why they are, cast so nicely. Are they still making yeah, those? Yeah, what, the 300 bucks or something? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> so you, yeah. you yeah. do... Um, a downstream presentation, so the, the fly is presented. No, no, I fish cross stream. Cross stream, and then you cross stream. Yeah, and then you drift the fly downstream by. Yeah, the fly precedes the leader. Okay. Because the the conventional wes wisdom is to cast upstream. Right. And, and so I talked to guys who do that. I said, uh, "Oh man, we missed it. Yeah. We missed that fish." And and then I uh, say, "How many times have you?" Uh, hooked a, a fish on the top of the head. They <laughs> said, so, oh, frequently. I said, do you know what happens? They said, no. He says, when you cast upstream and the fish comes up to take that fly, it hits your tippet. That's why when you get it, it's always in the top half of the mouth. Right. You know, where it's on the top of the head. Uh -huh. Or it hits a fly and you miss it. You can feel that little tick. Yeah, and that tick was it. It skimmed on the top of the head. Yeah, and said no one has explained that to me before. Yeah, I that... said, well, you're talking to a guy <laughs> who had to learn all of this on his own. There weren't people to teach me. There weren't classes. There weren't all these books. And it, it, you know, all you have to ask is to ask me, and I'll tell you how I fish. Yeah, because I used to give talks, and the talks were how moss fishes Hot Creek. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's not how you should fish Hot Creek. And I would show them where to put the fly and how to put it there and how to get 
a fish, for instance. Yeah. People say, oh, there's so much grass. I said, grass is your greatest friend there. He said, why? He says, it puts the amateurs off the stream. <laughs> and they, they, they don't know where to, to catch the fish. So I would show people, you know, where the tailing grass was, and there was a three-inch gap. Yeah. And I said, drop the fly three feet above that gap and let it float down that open space. And, and, and when that fish comes up, lift your rod horizontally. Don't pull it back. Just lift it straight, straight horizontally. Yeah. And, and it will set the hook. And the moment you hook them, walk them downstream. So they take them out of the grass. Nice. And only about four people I've taught actually do that. <laughs> and and there's some really nice fish under that grass. There is. Huh? So what's happened? The grass has declined dramatically over the years, and probably that's because the deer feed on the stream now. One so, time the deer never came in the stream. Is is have you seen that stream change dramatically? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah the vegetation along the banks has changed. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the silting that has occurred. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's, you You could say if you fished it in the 70s and 80s in the public section, yeah. and you were there the third week in June where the PMDs came off, and they were a six millimeter body, <clears throat> you could, because the fish at that time would come up from Crowley through the grass. Uh-huh. But, well, what's occurred is um, <clears throat> what's occurred is that um, the grass has gotten thick, so the fish don't spawn in, in the stream as they once did. Because you could go to that area just below the hatchery yeah. in the fall, and you you could count a hundred fish in that area spawning. Okay. Now you don't see maybe one or two. Interesting. Yeah, because what the hatchery did is they put that new pond in and silted, silted that whole area up. Oh. Yeah. And uh, uh, when they did the um, Casa Diablo hot spring penetration, it killed off all the stoneflies in the stream. There were two stoneflies that appeared there, you know, the yellow one. Oh, really? Okay. And, and then one that was kind of a mossy green. They disappeared. Interesting. And, and so you see almost uh, the scud are nearly all gone in Hawk Creek. I don't see any scud there. They might be there, but I don't harvest the grass anymore. Uh-huh. Yeah. But there's, there was millions of scud in there. Wow. And, and you could use a scud pattern. And uh, it was, it was, but, but basically, uh, when I teach fly tying, so you only need to know a couple of things. You need to know, first of all, you need to know two things. One is presentation, and two is pattern. That's all you need to know. And they say, well, okay. And the hardest one to learn is presentation. Sure. That's the hardest. Pattern, you, you can figure that out. And then when I teach fly tying... Uh, on time flies, I have only five requisites. One, it's got to catch fish. <laughs> two, two, it's got to be easy to tie. Three, it has to be durable. 
three, it has to be an four, it has to be inexpensive, and five, it has to be visible. Mm. And, and so when, when I when I when I do patterns, I I simply tell people that all you need to know is body size and body color. That's all you need to know. You just tie something with body size and body color. It doesn't make any difference with silhouette because if you tie it right, it'll float in the meniscus <clears throat> at an angle. And uh, I said, well, how do you get it to float at an angle? As well, you, you tie elk hair on there. You tie enough elk hair so you can see the fly. But the elk hair is there to float the fly, but it's also there for visibility. Mm-hmm. And then the other, so the, the merger is that fly that I use. And the other one is the Hot Creek Killer, which is basically one of the, the first flies that I tied. And I've been using that since the 50s. And it's worked. Yeah. Yeah. And you would you tie, because um, I know that Hot Creek has pretty small flies as well right so you would you oh, yeah would you tie like really tiny flies oh well what i do is is if if you can't buy really small hooks what you do is you tie the body a, a short body on the hook mm-hmm. say it's a size 20 hook uh-huh. and you want a three millimeter body all you tie is a body three millimeters long right and the analogy that I use is four guys are sitting in the bar and they're drinking and there's some well, well enhanced woman walks in and everyone looks at her <laughs> and I come in 10 minutes later and I say, Hey fellas, what color were her shoes? <laughs> Good one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because, uh, I, I believe the fish focuses on the body and the body color. And I've done demonstrations to show that. Uh-huh. So I'll take my hot creek emerger and I'll I'll tie it in a in a in a five millimeter body and I'll have it in five colors. And I'll take it down to the stream and I'll have these people with me and I know there are three fish in that one run. Yeah. And I'll cast each of them. I'll have uh, a PMD, maybe a I'll have uh, oh, anyway an olive body, yeah. maybe a tan body, maybe a gray body, and a peacock body. Uh-huh. And I'll float them over the fish, and I'll give each of them at least five five casts, maybe four casts. Uh-huh. But on one of those flies, what'll happen is those fish that are lying on the bottom. One of them will come up about three inches, maybe four inches, and then come down. And what that tells me is what we have is a right body color. Mm -hmm. And it's usually a peacock curl. And so then I explained to them, so we got the right body color, but we got the wrong body size. Mm -hmm. So I'll go down to maybe a three, three millimeter body. And I'll just put that one on 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 the the line, and I'll catch all three of those fish. Uh-huh. And 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 what I have against most fly tires is they make their flies too too complicated. 
Mm-hmm. And most of them don't don't understand the half itch, so they don't make them durable. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but that that's my stick anyway. That's good. That's, that's definitely yeah. a good philosophy. Yeah, because people ask me, how many flies fish have you caught on one fly before it came apart? <clears throat> and I I said um, I, I had a killer. And I caught 24 fish with it before it came apart. So how can you catch 24 fish? I said, well, after each third fish I catch, I retie the fly. But after each fish I catch, I feel for knots in the leader mm. and the tippet. And uh, so uh, durability, uh, you know, what does a fly cost me? Five cents a tie? Yeah. Because I still have hooks I paid four dollars a hundred for. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They got a dollar's worth of material. <laughs> you know. They've got this 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 these super peacock curls, the uh, real long ones that are really fine and they make a really thin body. And I was, I was, I was fishing with uh, um, Angles. What's Angles' first name? Oh, Ed. Ed. Yeah, yeah. I was fishing with Ed uh-huh. uh, on the south on the South Platte, uh-huh. and uh, a spinnerfall came on, and I picked one up, and it had a six millimeter body, so I put a six millimeter Hot Creek Emerger on there. And it said, I can't believe the guy caught that many fish. <laughs> and Ed, Ed's a master. Yeah. The guy, and he's one of the the most basic guys I've ever met. If if he were close by, I'd with, fish with him all the time. Uh-huh. Because he, he's, there's, there's nothing phony about him. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these fly, famous fly fishermen are big <laughs> I am's. Uh-huh. Not Ed. Uh-huh. And he's willing to share, and I love it. Yeah, I even put my fly in his last book. Oh, yeah, very cool. But but the leader, the leader, uh, they still sell the Mason freshwater kits, and you can probably go online and buy them. They they, you know, they're probably about forty dollars now. I I don't know how much they cost because I haven't bought one in a long time, but. Um, uh, for tippet material, uh, a lot of people use a lot of things. They use fluorocarbon and all that, but uh-huh. not me. I use P-Line. I just buy it in bulk uh-huh. and put it on the little spools. And uh, I have stuff that I bought in 2005 that's still good. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I yeah. got I got uh, one last uh, question for you. And... Uh, I wanted to ask you your favorite stream to fish and your favorite fly. Well, there, there are a number of streams that are my favorite. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's, well, that's uh, a hard Hot Creek is, is kind of the place I, I fish for, for so long. Sure. And the fly that works the best most of the time is my, Peacock Hot Creek Emerger. 
that, that probably works better than any other fly on that stream. Okay. It's probably caught more fish on that stream than any other fly I use. Okay. And uh, the second would probably be the the peacock killer. And that's your uh, your your own fly. Yeah, yeah, that's a fly that I tie. It's called it's called a killer. If some <laughs> I love it. If somebody was to want yeah. to learn how to tie these, could they find that somewhere? Like a oh, uh, I think we have those on on uh, on our. Uh, Sierra Pacific has What's, has them on their webs okay. web page. I think okay. I'm not sure, but I know they 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 taped all of those at one time. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah, uh, Michael Paratus would probably know about that. Do you know Michael Paratus? Yeah, yeah. He he. Uh, I think he taped my uh, presentation at Sierra Pacific. I think he does a lot. Yeah, of that, yeah. Right? Well, he he knows all about that stuff. Okay, and probably. I love the the frying pan. Oh yeah, huh? And I love Henry's fork. Uh-huh. And I love the South Platte. If I had four streams <laughs> to fish, and it, it's kind of if they those places were closer, I'd fish them more. But sure. But what I would do is I'd just go there for two weeks and yeah. fish the same stream. Yeah. And. uh that that that's I do that every year. I go one place for two weeks or maybe three weeks. Yeah. But you know, having been a teacher, I always had time off in the summer. Right. right. Yeah. So it's it's the best job for being a fly fisherman. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, but, Moss, that was a great podcast, buddy. Thank you so much. For well, I don't know how how you're going to edit it or what you're going to do. But, no, 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 uh, no editing. I'm, it was all perfect. I mean, I'm I'm still, you know, live right now. So, um, I really appreciate your knowledge and your your history and everything that you you talked to me about. I learned a lot, and uh-huh. uh, I really appreciate it. Well, good. We did an hour. Yeah, it's about perfect. okay we'll keep in touch yeah thanks moss we'll talk soon okay okay bye-bye bye Bye. with everything going on in the world today right now could be the best time ever to diversify your retirement savings with precious metals like gold and silver i just bought some precious metals myself and i got them from the top rated company gold co they couldn't have made the process easier and their customer service was impeccable Gold Co. has helped thousands of people, just like you and me, place over $2.5 billion in gold and silver. They're rated A-plus by Better Business Bureau. They've earned over 5,000 five-star reviews. They're a seven-time incorporated 5,000 winner. And that's just mentioning a few of their accomplishments. There's plenty more. Right now, for my listeners, they're offering up to $10,000 in bonus silver. You heard that right, up to $10,000 in bonus silver, but only while supplies last. Go to goldco.com slash guy to learn more. That's goldco.com slash guy. Diversify your savings with gold and silver today at goldco.com slash guy. It's a Guy Jeans podcast.